This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's now my, my pleasure and my honor to introduce our friend and colleague, Dr. Harold Schmitz. So before I tell you about Harold's background, I'll tell you a little bit about his company, Mars Incorporated. So Mars is one of the largest food manufacturers in the world with net sales of more than $33 billion a year. That makes it one of the largest privately held companies in the United States. And Mars is much more than just a chocolate maker, although we love the chocolate. Uh, they have six business segments, including pet care, chocolate, of course, Wrigley's, foods, drinks, and symbioscience. Excuse me. Mars is based in McLean, Virginia, and has 72,000 associates worldwide, and is recognized as one of the best places to work by the Wall Street Journal. Harold has been with Mars now for 20 years. He was named Chief Science Officer in 2005, and his key responsibilities include, for example, strategy development, program alignment, quality control of the company's multidisciplinary science and research uh, development programs. So he's got a very wide, uh, broad remit. Early in Harold's career, he developed a long-term collaboration with the Department of Nutrition here at UC Davis, and that relationship remains one of the cornerstones of what has catalyzed the deeper and broader relationship between Mars and UC Davis. We share a strong focus in addressing grand challenges faced by industry and global society, and we're working on those together through collaborative scientific research coupled with innovation and entrepreneurship and the commercialization of new scientific discoveries. Now, since the 1970s, Mars has partnered with UC Davis in a range of multidisciplinary research projects covering agricultural, biological, food, veterinary, and nutritional science. Before joining Mars, Harold was a United States Department of Agriculture National Needs Research Fellow at North Carolina State University in their Department of Food Science. He received a Master of Science degree in Food Science from the University of Illinois and then went on to get his PhD in Food Science with a minor in Organic Chemistry at, the, at North Carolina State University. He has a keen interest in enhancing contributions that science can make to society, as, for example, represented in, represented in his involvement with the Executive Committee of the Government University Industry Research Roundtable at the National Academies. And most importantly to us, Harold recently became a senior fellow in management here in the Graduate School of Management, and he'll be teaching an MBA elective later this year on business and innovation in the food and ag sectors. So Harold is also uh, plying us before he speaks, so you will find <laughs> a sample of goodies there in your bag on your, on your seat. So Harold, thank you very much for the <laughs> chocolate infusion. <laughs> so I hope you'll enjoy those later on. So tonight, Harold is on a mission from Mars. <laughs> He's going to talk about the business of chocolate and the food industry. So please join me in welcoming Harold Schmitz. Steve. Thanks, Steve. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, 
I usually, Steve kind of took a little bit of the thunder away. I usually have the best line in any meeting, which is, hi, I'm from Mars. It was a long trip here. Um, but um, we're, we're on a mission for Mars here, as Steve said. It's a real pleasure to be here. And Steve, I want to thank you for the, for the invitation. And I understand uh, Andy Hargadon's crew is in here, the Entrepreneurship Academy. And I actually, I think that aside from the fact that you've all got chocolate, so the evening is a success, so you've, you know, it's done, you showed up, you got the chocolate, that's successful. I think that the topic that, um, that we're going to talk about tonight will, will, be, will be interesting to you, and it'll be a little bit, um, you will be a little bit surprised at where we go. But I have an agenda. I'm going to be transparent with the agenda very shortly here as, as to the sort of message that... That I would like to uh, that I'd like to to deliver. Let's see if this works. Yep. Um, so the outline of the presentation for the next twenty or twenty-five minutes before we get into the discussion will will be the following. I'm going to present to you the opportunity statement. So in the business world, when you hear opportunity statement, that means we got a big problem. And we got to figure out how to solve it, so let's call it an opportunity first of all, and then we can get people working around it. But we're going to start with the opportunity statement, which is represented up here, and I'll say a little bit more about momentarily. Then I'm going to present to you an idea, and uh, with an idea that has it's more than just theoretical, but it's a it's a it's a different angle to about how to approach this opportunity, especially in the context of entrepreneurship and, and also scaling up innovation, which is a topic that probably needs, needs more addressing, and, and Steve and his crew are, think a lot about that. Um, and then thirdly, I'm going to walk through this business of chocolate topic, possibly in a couple of surprising ways, to, to demonstrate this, this theme that I would like to address about how you might want to think about this, uh, you know, how to, take a, uh, how to solve, solve the problems, take advantage of the opportunity in a, in a business context. So the problem statement or the opportunity statement is that it is unambiguous that the food, agriculture, and health sector has done the following. Number one, it has created an ability for humans to live in times of prosperity, generally speaking, across the world that we've never, you know, we've never had this opportunity to enjoy this before. We have food security in many parts of the world that was unthinkable, that's enabled us to, to live lives that we haven't lived before, etc. It's also unambiguous that the food agriculture uh, sector, food and ag sector, is also um, bringing on some some issues in terms of the way it operates that are also uh, need to be recognized. Some of those include climate change, um, loss of biodiversity, uh, use of land that, that uh, could, could perhaps be better, uh, massive amounts of energy use and pollution and that sort of thing. And this, uh, this, this is a great uh, article here in Nature, Cover in Nature, a guy named Jonathan Foley wrote this article. Um, he's written a number of articles. I highly recommend that you, you look him up if you're interested in this topic. He explains it in unambiguous scientific terms and couples it with such a really good lucid explanation of, of uh, what's happening, what are some strategies that, that can open up opportunities for solutions, etc. 
but here's some, some thoughts that, that, uh, that you can read for yourself that Jonathan's put forward, and, and I think it, you know, it says it pretty clearly, and that is that uh, agriculture and the food industry you know, nested within that is really a dominant force, if not the dominant force, in terms of, uh, of creating many of the, the threats that, that we know we're going to have to deal with as a human society going forward if we want to keep living the way that we live. And, um, and so as we look forward, and we know that our, our population, at least you know, the global population on the course that we're on, will be somewhere in the neighborhood of 9 billion people around 2050, you know, give or take some hundreds of millions, but somewhere there, we really do face one of the greatest challenges that, that mankind has ever faced, which is how do you feed these people? Um, how do you create the sort of wealth and industry and enterprise that agriculture does and, and helps to make nations um, secure and peaceful? And, um, and how do you do this in a way that is actually contributing to environmental, ecological, cultural, et cetera, social sustainability, rather than subtracting from it? And so, um, honestly, when you go through the data, it's very easy to be daunted by the task, and it's very easy to get, get depressed about it. Um, but Thomas Edison, you know, great quote, which many of you will have seen, and that is that the point is to see threats um, as opportunities, because they really are. They're, they're magnificent opportunities, and there's no doubt that there's magnificent business opportunity in it. And in fact, Dean Carell mentioned the sustainable ag tech piece, and um, those, are, those are people who get it. They see the opportunity. And I know many of you in this audience are, are all over that. But that's, that's the context of this. And then I, I, I will often say food and ag, but I will also often say food, ag, and health, because all of those three sectors are, are inextricably linked, as, as everyone is aware, I think. So this is the, this is the opportunity statement. Um, and this is, my, this is my key message. So this is my transparent agenda that I'll talk about a little bit now. So I'm a, I'm a scientist to some degree, and I'm not a poet. I tried to write a little poem here with my key message. Um, so scientific discovery and fundamental understanding in food and agriculture and health sectors offer critical business opportunities for entrepreneurship and innovation at scale. And I put critical in all capital letters and in red, and I chose that word very specifically because I could put I could have put in there offer fantastic business opportunities. I could have put offer important business. There's a whole bunch of different words I could have chosen, but I chose critical. And the reason I chose critical is because of the, the opportunity statement I just presented to you. It is critical from a business perspective that the food and ag sector figures out how to transform itself over the coming decades or there, there really is quite likely to be some consequences that, that, are, that are very complicated in terms of, of human society and how, how we go forward. So it's a critical opportunity, not just an important one. And all of us who participate in that, it's very inspirational, I think, that you get an opportunity to be part of a critical opportunity area. So that's sort of part of this theme. The, uh, the other part of this theme, which I hope will come out as I go through the case studies of, of the business of chocolate is that there is a role in 
scientific discovery and fundamental research, and yes, I am biased, I'm a chief science officer, and so at a certain level, of course I would say that, and each of you as you know, business people or, or budding business people, you, you need to learn about the discount factor. So when somebody's talking to you, what's the discount factor? Well, the chief science officer is saying that you need to think about scientific discovery and fundamental research. So there's a little bit of a discount factor there. But I can uh, tell you after 20 years, working in one of the world's largest um, food companies that is dependent on the agricultural sector and also living in the environment of Washington, D.C., where Mars is headquartered and my family and I have had the opportunity to live for the past 12, 13 years, I have seen a lot and I've gotten to analyze a lot and I've gotten to participate in a lot, which I'll, I'll talk to you about in a moment. And I guess what I really, really would like to pass on, especially to, to the... Uh, to the folks in the room who are, who are thinking about how to become entrepreneurs or part of businesses or business leaders going forward is the really striking opportunities, not always, but often, are in the ambiguous, nebulous, unpredictable, differing time, course, and path space of discoveries that come out of fundamental research. And that's where, as an entrepreneur, you can seize an idea, you can create intellectual property around it that fits a business model need, and you can really do something different. And as you do something different, if the idea is transformative enough, if the scientific discovery is, is important enough, while you're building a great business, you can actually change the world and the way it goes. And you know, to, to think about that, you only have to look around at our world today and look at your handheld devices and, and drive, take a drive out into the Central Valley, and many of you are probably from there, so you know it well, but I can tell you that on my bicycle rides now on the weekend, it's just a, it's fascinating to take a ride through the valley and see how technology has changed you know, farming in, in, in California, the diversity, the diversity at scale, the way resources are thought about. All of those things are little businesses that have entrepreneurship and then scale involved in them. And, and we, we need to do more of that. I think that if I was at all going to be sound a warning, um, you know, message tonight, I would, the, the warning would be that it seems like at the federal level, at least in the U.S. Um, Mars is very global, so I do have a, very much of a global perspective, but you know, being U.S.-centric for a moment, at the federal level in the U.S., and I think to a large degree at the, at the industry level in the U.S., it's really difficult to, uh, uh, to, to advance um, ideas and resource investment in this area of fundamental research. Er, fundamental research and therefore the scientific discoveries that come from that. And aside from being a chief science officer, so just being a citizen of the world with children who I hope will also have children and you know, generations after that, I'm really concerned because I think without that investment and without those discoveries, new businesses that transform the food and ag sector are not going to happen. So that's, that's my impassioned sort of part of the message. But I'll, uh, I'll go through these case studies and give you something concrete to work with rather than, rather than just the theoretical bit that I just mentioned. So the business of chocolate. This is 
This is what probably many of you would have thought, you know, walking in, um, and, and it's actually, there's evidence of that in the bags that are in each of your chairs. That, that's the business of chocolate, um, which is, and I'm, I'm hoping this is a, yes. Um, so this is the uh, cocoa tree, so it's Theobroma cacao. These are the, the cocoa pods. These are the fruits that grow on these trees. They grow, it's a neotropical crop. They grow around a narrow band around the equator, the equatorial regions around the world. Um, and uh, they're about the size, whoops, they're about the size of a, of a football. Um, and there's seeds in them, about 40, 45 seeds. And it's those seeds that people call cocoa beans. And it's those seeds that are mashed up and the, flav the unique flavor, sensory, uh, uh, textural properties that are inherent in the chemical composition of those seeds, that's what deliver this, uh, you know, responsible for the unique attributes of chocolate, which is a very, you know, very large business around the world. Um, and so the business of chocolate for probably, you know, last 150 years, 175 years has been taking this, the, the seeds off of this, this tree and through lots of, you know, shipping, post-harvest physiology, all kinds of good stuff, transforming this into, into uh, that. And the business of chocolate uh, really began when, uh, when European contact, the business of chocolate really began when European contact happened here in the Caribbean region straight away, Columbus, 1492. There's accounts of... Uh, of, uh, of, of you know, Columbus observing that the most valuable thing that the native population um, coveted were, were these, what he called them what looked like almonds, and we now know those were actually the cocoa seeds. And um, so it happened there. there, there had been a thriving business of cacao for millennia before that. And then with European contact, it's sort of the, the business evolved from the business of cacao to the business of chocolate. And uh, you can see that, um, you can see that uh, you know, from this point of contact, and then as the colonial period descended upon Central and South America, so the origin of, of uh, cacao is in the upper Amazon regions here. And, um, and, and so these were the critical ports from a colonial period. And you can see that cacao went you know, as far as Southeast Asia, um, in the 1600s, the Dutch traders, you know, these were sort of like state secrets. How do you get the cacao tree um, over to our, you know, secret it out of here, get it around the horn, get up into here and plant it on, you know, on our territory. And that was the business of chocolate for a long time. How do you secure supply to make a product that is highly coveted and that, frankly, people will pay a lot of money for? Um, then... Uh, over time, West Africa with the French and the British became the primary growing region, and to date, um, this region produces 60 to 70 percent of annual supplies of, of cocoa. So then the business of chocolate round about uh, 2011 changed forever because a person named Howard Shapiro, who's actually um, also a senior fellow in the Department of, of Plant Science um, here at Davis. Howard and a team um, got, came together and decided that it was time that we sequence the cacao genome. And so 
the business of chocolate rapidly evolved from one where you secured supply through basically primitive methods of agriculture to one that needed to utilize the most modern um, aspects of plant science. You know, so decoding the sequence of the cacao tree genome, figuring out how to utilize that roadmap, in effect, to breed better trees. Um, then there's a whole uh, business and entrepreneurship evolution around, you know, in these neotropic regions of, okay, how do you now you know, breed better trees, these are the value-added trees, how do you farm these, how does this change yield, how does this change farming practices, it changes the whole business envelope around, around uh, cacao farming, which is very interesting. So, so now the business of cocoa involves modern plant science that you could also equate to what you see on a bike ride around the, around the valley here. Another aspect of the business of chocolate is uh, this chart. So this is data from Mars Incorporated that we started to collect in the 1950s, and this is, this is rainfall in West Africa, and you see this decrease. And so what you see here is a concrete representation of climate change affecting the region that grows you know, 60 to 70% of the global supply of cacao. So now the business of chocolate is, is, is about how do we breed better trees, and by the way, just for clarity, we're not using at this point GMO techniques, it's all traditional breeding techniques, but it's based off of the knowledge of the, of the genomic um, sequence information, so it's massively accelerated. How do we make better trees that can deal with the different climactic conditions that are becoming part of the way of life or in different growing regions? So that's, that's very interesting. So. Um, and then another question that's an open question in the business of chocolate is, as we get this knowledge, as we develop these trees, is it better business to grow cacao in a highly diverse sort of um, rainforest ecosystem, or is it better to grow it in, you know, in a more... Uh, in a, in a more um, focused sort of way, again, that you might see if you took a ride around, around the area here. So, and then this is really interesting. This is, the first, um, this, this is the first representation by a European of the cacao tree. It's uh, from the Spanish missionaries. This, is, I think, is from the Bidaeus uh, Codice. And this picture and image is in a tree, or in a book, sorry, that, that uh, Howard Shapiro and Lou Gravetti, who's an emeritus professor here at Davis, they compiled over about six years the definitive um, scholarly work on the history of cacao, both pre-Columbrian as well as post-Columbian, and it's, it's a joy to read. The stories are absolutely amazing, and this image is a beautiful one. Um, but the, you know, the first sort of European business of chocolate was figuring this out from the indigenous populations, how to grow it, what the fragilities were, you know, what it was for. It was for medicine when they found it. It's evolved into, you know, to become an indulgent treat to a certain extent. Um, and then uh, one last slide along, along this theme is that, uh, you know, so here's, a, here's an interesting representation of, of the business of chocolate. This is a view from IBM. This was an, an advertisement they ran, um, I think, in 2011 or thereabouts. They were one of our partners for sequencing the cacao genome. And 
they ran this advertisement in the Wall Street Journal because in support of their smarter, you know, they have this smarter sort of campaign, smarter cities, smarter agriculture, et cetera. And they were so taken with what has been happening with cacao as well as its importance around these neotropic regions for more than six million smallholder farmers that they utilized it as an example uh, to illustrate why the business of chocolate is so much more to so many more people than we often think about and realize than you know just the just the consuming of a of a candy bar. I should say because Howard would be angry if I didn't say it. At this time, when we made this slide, we thought the sequencing of the genome would be done this year. Um, actually, the the team completed it two years early. So instead of 2008 to 2013, it was a 2008 to 2011. Exercised and ended up being one of the gold standards, apparently, as Howard tells me, for, for sequencing plant genomes. So now I'm going to switch gears. So you just, saw, you just saw the business of chocolate, I suspect, in a different way than, than maybe you thought I could talk. I could have just as easily talked about how fundamental research discoveries can drive um, understanding how to process chocolate in different ways, and that can open up different avenues of thought for building factories differently, for doing, doing business in different ways there. I just, I just went through an example of where fundamental research and scientific discovery in terms of understanding the history of a crop, a history of its use by, by people who like it, and then fundamental research in the plant science and agriculture area open up new, new areas of understanding. This is probably an example um, that genuinely describes this theme that I'm trying to drive about as an entrepreneur, as a person in a large-scale business trying to grow that business to a bigger, bigger business, whatever it is. Um, you know, pay attention to, have patience with, invest in at least some modicum of fundamental research because what you do in doing this may give you results that actually open up whole new areas of business and actually sometimes those whole new areas of business may end up being, being something that can help make the world a better place. And this is, this is something that, that we experienced. It was a genuine sort of fundamental research discovery that was totally unanticipated and the discovery was made in the late 1980s by a, a, a chemist named Lee Romancic and at Mars's Cocoa Research Farm in Brazil, um, he, while working on the sensory attributes of, of cocoa and chocolate, he discovered um, in a more detailed and specific way than anyone to date had done so, a class of compounds in uh, cocoa called flavanols. And being a chemist and having an interest in medicinal chemistry, Lee recognized that the structure of these molecules resembled some things that he had seen being worked on in the area of actually cancer therapeutics. And so for a number of years, and, and this, was, this was sort of the, uh, this would be in the world of scientific bench research, what then followed for about five or six years was, was the era of heroic research, which is when it is, you have a couple of people who work 24-7, basically, and do nothing 
but just separate out molecules. And it's hard work, and it's boring work, and it takes years, and it's just, it's grinded out. But those are the kind of things that, that have to be done in order to then open the doors up for, you know, for the more enjoyable aspects of discovery. So Lee did this. And when I joined the company in 1993, um, we started to very quietly work, in fact, on, an, on a, a cancer therapeutic strategy with these molecules. We then made some discoveries in the area of nitric oxide biology, which you, you would, if you Google it, it'll, it'll tie into a Nobel Prize that was won in 1998, um, because nitric oxide biology is the governing um, sort of uh, chemical reaction that takes care of your blood vessel function, which is super important when you think about every aspect of what you do and your health is somehow dependent on whether the blood gets there, and if the blood gets there, the oxygen and the nutrition that it's carrying to set, you know to a various tissue, whether it's brain tissue, kidney tissue, eye tissue, muscle, whatever. So vascular biology is a really important thing, and nitric oxide is important in that. And so we then embarked on a fundamental research journey of discovery that was pretty difficult to justify to chocolate executives. (laughs) So, and I want you guys, seriously, and it is funny, actually. There's no doubt. I mean, the stories that I can tell... um, but it, it, I mean, it is, and, and they're, they're funny stories. You walk up to a president of you know, a multi-billion dollar chocolate business within Mars, and you don't walk up to talk about how many cases you've sold or how you've sped up a process in the factory or something like that, which, by the way, is equally interesting. But you do walk up and you say, hey, I want to talk to you about nitric oxide. And um, that's that's not a good way to you know make friends um, with with you know with the chocolate executive team, but it's important because you guys will be some of you guys will be in those positions in management teams. Some of you will be you know entrepreneurs on your own. And the point here is that the company Mars had the patience to actually let this fundamental research discovery play out over literally now a couple of decades. And what has played out is that the business of chocolate has now actually, you know, the resources from that business of chocolate plus the understanding of that tree, cacao, theobroma cacao, has enabled a chemical understanding. And that chemical understanding has revealed a knowledge about molecules that can actually help reduce the morbidity issues associated with diabetes, as this data would indicate, and actually possibly save lives, okay? That's fascinating. How in the world can I be standing up here talking about the business of chocolate and now be talking about this? Well, it's because of that pivot point of an enterprise understanding the role of fundamental research and scientific discovery and how it can lead to unforeseen and big opportunities. So this journal, I mean, it's important. You know, we, we're, we're on a university campus. The fact is there's good journals and there's not so good journals. This is one of the best journals in one of the biggest areas of business and medicine in the world. So it's the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Cardiovascular disease accounts for somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 billion a year in expenses in the U.S. alone. 
every year, and a lot of that has to do with blood flow and vascular biology and maintaining the health of that. And so this is, you know, from this very highly ranked journal, this is, you know, one of uh, uh, more than 140 uh, peer-reviewed publications we have, but look at this conclusion. Diets rich in flavanols reverse, uh, you know, vascular dysfunction. I think you can, you know, grasp that dysfunction is not a good thing. We want vascular function, not dysfunction, but in diabetes. And, you know, many of you are very well aware that diabetes is, is sort of a ticking time bomb that can be a real problem going forward for, for societies um, around the world. So that's an interesting one. And then, as if that's not enough, um, this, you know, and this is, where, this is where research can take you sometimes. Not, we, we also published recently um, this paper and as I mentioned to you, uh, vascular function can influence a lot of things. It can also influence cognitive health, not at all surprisingly. And um, this was a several-year study. Uh, Catherine Quick-Uribe graduated from, uh, graduated from UC Davis, so you guys can be proud of that. And, um, and what this research showed is that in this cohort of uh, elderly subjects with mild cognitive impairment, the results were, were actually very impressive in terms of of, uh, of improving cognitive function in this group. So in an era when a few drugs have failed at the latest stage of clinical trials in the pharmaceutical world, and probably all of us know of a situation in which you're dealing with a person who's starting to have difficulty with cognitive function, or many of you in this room will, will, will know folks like that, this is very interesting, and it's opening up a whole new area of research. The business of chocolate, interesting. Um, and so I'll, I'll, in the interest of time, I'll skip over this, except to say briefly that, uh, that the business of chocolate has also le led the European Union to fund a consortium with Mars, UC Davis, and a number of European institutions to, to do a very, you know, this is now not fundamental research. This is now progressed to applied research. And it's flat out, you know, the European Union wanting to understand um, what the business opportunities are, and to work with proven cardiovascular health benefits from nutrition. As business leaders of the future or business leaders now, you will all understand the importance of having, of, of marketing concepts that are proven as opposed to marketing concepts that are good stories but fall apart later on. That's not sustainable business. So um, my last slide then, is, is the following, and that is that, um, you know, and, I, and I, hope, I hope you appreciate this. Actually, I've got, sorry, I have, I have one more slide after this, but um, um, it's just a repeat of that theme, being transparent. But, uh, you know, the business of chocolate is actually probably something very different than what you might have walked into the room thinking of, as long as the business of chocolate is embracing of, supportive of, you know, pursuing a fundamental research and scientific discovery agenda that can open up new possibilities by understanding things in different ways. And many of you in here may have a particular interest in Africa and uh, sub-Saharan Africa. I can tell you that Mars does, you know, in a very selfish way because, again, you know, a huge amount of the world cocoa supply comes from that region. But as we've, over the years, put together this research portfolio that's then led to an interesting new business portfolio within chocolate, it's, it's fascinating. So 
what do you, you know, what are some of the situations in Africa that we know that we're dealing with, sub-Saharan Africa? Well, we're dealing with land that has just been totally devastated, so rainforest that's lost. Um, cacao agriculture of the future absolutely has the potential to change that for the better. In fact, I was just on the telephone with, with Howard um, Shapiro yesterday, and he was telling, he's in Brazil, and he was telling me about the conclusion of an experiment in which a mixed agroforestry system has totally reclaimed some totally barren and devastated land in Brazil. So, so you know, the farming of cacao can help reclaim some of this, this sort of land, which is all too prevalent if you travel to, to uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, under you know the business of chocolate can actually um, uh, really enhance an agricultural productivity system just like what happened in the United States, just like what happened in, in other cultures around the world you know that have built a society you know based on a foundation of food security and agricultural innovation and in business. This sort of thing can be done with cacao agriculture and it can result in more kids going to school, more kids becoming advanced farmers, more kids going wherever they want to go in the world, in fact. Um, and we have, uh, we're doing tons of uh, programs here in the last few decades and have a lot to talk about there. In Africa, in fact, sub-Saharan Africa, no difference in terms of public health risks. Vascular disease is right up there. Hypertension is huge. Um, this uh, this particular study we did at UC San Francisco, again published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in 2010, and here you see uh, the in, this is the, the group that consumed these cocoa flavanols, and this is the group that didn't, and blood flow went up, uh, con, you know, baseline uh, into the study, and this is blood pressure. So um, some of you will have familiarity with antihypertensive drugs, and it's, it's frankly, it's, it's really, Amazing um, at, at seeing this data and getting it from a public health impact, but now put on your business hat. What is the market sector for antihypertensives? I can tell you, you know, a lot of our retirement funds are, you know, happily depending on these. Imagine the business, the entrepreneurial, the, the innovation at scale opportunities that come from the business of chocolate, which figured this out. And by the way. For those real, you know, hardcore entrepreneurs in here, how about going to Africa and starting businesses that, you know, that are based on a crop that has grown there that can yield these sorts of benefits and that sort of thing? It's actually, you know, it sort of makes the mind race with the opportunities. Um, you know, and it, and it all comes from under, a fundamental understanding of the biology of this tree, of the agronomic factors that go into farming this tree, the chemistry that results from that, the environmental conditions that this tree needs to grow under, um, and, and understanding just like the human genome sequencing has opened up incredible areas of business, you know, uh, other crop genomes, it all derives from this roadmap, um, which derives from uh, uh, an understanding of fundamental research, and then not having it sit in a silo, but having it translate into um, innovation processes, entrepreneurship processes, et cetera. And so this is, this is just a repeat again, you know, and, and I, I hope that I've at least put a slight dent in whatever views you might have. If, if, you, 
if you were wondering about, you know, just what is the role of research, you know, at a large enterprise level? Why do, you know, why do governments spend on this? Why do businesses spend on this? You know, what, what does it mean? I hope that uh, I hope the examples that I've talked about, in terms of the business of chocolate, can at least open up a, a dialogue and a discussion about that, because I think it's a critical discussion because I think the business opportunities associated are critical in terms of food, ag, and, and frankly, the future of, uh, you know, of society on Earth and our, our, our generations after this. So I'll stop here, and we can have a, have a discussion. Um, and thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it. Harold, what a uh, fascinating message of uh, integrating science and business and innovation. So uh, terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. Very interesting. So we're, uh, we're going to have a, a, a dialogue. Harold and I are now going to have a dialogue for a few minutes, and then we're going to open up to your questions. So eager to have your questions and, and comments in, in a few moments. But <clears throat> Harold, let, let me begin by talking about this, uh, pursuing this theme of sustainable agriculture uh, a bit further. Um, in fact, just recently at the uh, Clinton Global Initiative meeting, uh, Mars Chief Agricultural uh, Officer Howard Shapiro, your colleague you mentioned a minute ago, and our senior fellow here at UC Davis was highlighting the uncommon opportunities for uh, fighting malnutrition and hunger in Africa. So tell us a little bit more about what Mars is doing in the area of sustainable agricultural agriculture, and especially in developing countries. Sure, and that's a good question and interesting stuff. So I'll tell you, I, I can tell you about what Mars is doing, but but I can't tell you what Mars is doing without also saying that it's a, a lot of people doing it, and Mars is privileged to be part of that group. But our experience in Africa it goes back. I, mean, I showed you that that graph on the rainfall, so. Right. I'd say round about the early 1950s, um, Forrest Mars Sr., um, who, who built Mars Incorporated in terms of what it is structurally now, he recognized that, uh, that uh, cocoa was a or so-called orphan crop. So there was no, no uh, developed country government that was going to invest in it. So we needed to understand it better. So as a result, Mars Incorporated spent a lot of time it's people on the ground in West Africa understanding the crop. So not only did we learn, grow to learn to understand cacao, we also grew to learn and understand you know, the regional situation. And, um, and so one of the things, and Howard, very much to give credit where credit is due, really recognized that if you're going to have a healthy farming community, you need to actually have a healthy community. And it's one thing to have great cocoa trees, but you also need to have a, 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 you know, a great food security situation as well. So following the sequencing of the cacao genome, um, Howard put forward the vision that why don't we, instead of doing one genome, let's do 100. For those of you who know Howard, that would be, yeah, sure, why not? Let's do 100. Um, so, um, so we're now working with the Beijing Genomics Institute, which is a group that's associated with UC Davis, mm -hmm. Life Technologies, uh, in fact, UC Davis, the College of Agriculture, and we're working, uh, we're sequencing 100 genomes of indigenous African food crops, so indigenous African food crops, 
And by, by having those roadmaps, it's anticipated that we will be able to, not we, but actually the African communities and the scientists we're developing there along with UC Davis, will be able to breed better crops that are more nutritious and more tolerant of the environmental challenges they face, et cetera. And that will hopefully become part of the fabric of a healthy sub-Saharan Africa in the coming decades. That's great. Inspiring. It's 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 amazing to see these guys at work. And I should also say, then this is so. This is where this is what fundamental research can do. This this is what can drive the management teams crazy. Okay. So, <laughs> so you so you sort of it's like the researchers say, ah, oh, we got this, and then but now we know this, and we can go there. And so as we're doing this program. Lo and behold, because our headquarters are in Washington, D.C., and we lived in Bethesda, um, we started to mingle with the NIH and the directors in, at NIH, and they said, well, hey, we have a program called H3 Africa, which is mapping the, the uh, human genome uh, elements within sub-Saharan Africa, um, you know, doing a massive project there. What if we brought together the understanding of the human uh, genomics arena in sub-Saharan Africa now with being able to match the food crops and mm. that understanding. Right. And so over time, you could really accelerate this, uh, this improvement of public health, et cetera. So right. now that's even the more inspirational but daunting right. vision. But, but very, uh, <laughs> very promising. Yeah, very, very promising. So let, let's talk now about uh, Mars as a company, and uh, I'm interested in, in, in your observations and experience around the steps that Mars has taken in recent years to diversify its product lines. So acquired, there's been some acquisitions that Mars has made, and so what, what have some of the challenges and opportunities been as Mars begins to diversify its product line out mm -hmm. beyond its its historical products. Yeah. So, um, well, that's a great question, and uh, you know, one of the things I should I usually mention this. I'll say it now. Mars is a very interesting company because it's it's uh, for a number of reasons, and all companies, by the way, are interesting in their own ways, but. Part of what makes Mars interesting is that it's, it's privately held, 100% owned by the Mars family, and it's been that way for 100 years, different forms, and that creates a culture. And so um, you know, all businesses viscerally and instinctively want to grow, and at some point in time, um, growing includes the concept of, of uh, buying other businesses and acquiring new product lines and diversifying. And, um, and I, I guess a, a critical thing, and again, especially for the Entrepreneurship Academy here, um, a really useful way to think of businesses is to think of them as living organisms or, or cells, actually. And, um, and as you introduce new complexity into the organism, there's benefits that come from that, and there's also complications in the cellular machinery that come from that. And so... Um, and so, you know, and, and those complications can actually, if not handled well, can end up stifling innovation or, or stifling, you know, discovery and that sort of thing. Mars, um, you know, to answer your question directly, we've been able to, we've been able to steer through that and, you know, clearly through the efforts we do, we still, we still, uh, we still are able to keep on that path, but as a, 
as a teaching concept here and for you guys as, as you're going forward, never underestimate how important change is, both in terms of how it disrupts your current thinking, you know, as well as the opportunities that it might bring. So let, let's stay on that theme of organizational culture for a minute. So yeah. <clears throat> Mars has been recognized in recent years for being a very attractive place to work mm-hmm. for uh, new graduates, MBA graduates, and others. Um, and you've been working at Mars now for about 20 years. So what, what can you tell us about that culture and how is uh, Mars using its organizational culture as a source of competitive advantage as you compete against rival companies? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, so a couple of, couple of comments. One, one is that, um, and, and you know, this, is, this is a supposition on my part, but uh, um, what, I've, what I've seen and experienced with Mars in terms of its culture development is that because it's a private company and because the, the family that owns it is involved, what you're left with is you're working in an enterprise that is human. Now, humans have their foibles. We all have them. There's, you know, we all have the parts that were, are good, bad, etc. And but but what you get in working at Mars, and I think why it's you know personally, and I've said this a lot, it's the only large company I'll ever work for, even mm-hmm. if I were to leave leave Mars tomorrow or be fired tomorrow for whatever reason. I'm sure that won't happen. <laughs> um, but but I, Mars would be the only large company I'd work for, and the reason is this human element. It's a it's a very very human organization for the good and for the bad, and, and you see it for what it is. So it's authentic, and I think in the world of business, especially going forward, successful businesses tend to be authentic businesses. You know what you claim your product is authentic, what you claim about is authentic, how you are is authentic, and Mars is is. Mm-hmm is definitely very authentic. Another um, aspect of why Mars is interesting and, and well-regarded is that we're very global. So um, mm-hmm. I can tell you that after 20 years of working there, I feel more as a global citizen than I do as a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really, really, really interesting and mm-hmm. fascinating. And then lastly, um, it is a culture that emphasizes face-to-face interactions. Mm-hmm. And face-to-face interactions mm-hmm often, done in the right way, build up trust. And there is a certain trust that builds up in Mars that, at least in my experience, I haven't seen as much in other organizations. I think people naturally like to be part of of that sort of situation. Well, that's a neat point. That resonates with me because my main program of research is on trust in the workplace, and I've been studying that for since 1987, so Mm. that point resonates with me a lot. So, um, Harold, can we take some questions sure. from uh, from the group here? So I know there's uh, interesting comments and questions. There's a lot of expertise out here, actually, I both scientific might and Might need to hire some of business. them. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love for you to hire them. And pay them a lot of money, too, if you would, please. So are there questions or, or comments? Hemant, uh, and can you wait for the mic, please, to come over to you? Hey, thank you, Harold. And for me, it was really informative when you talked about scientific discovery, that your focus was really on sort of the life sciences, physical sciences, plant science, genetics, chemistry, and so forth. And, you know, you started talking about the the challenge of feeding the 9 million people, right? And yet I'm reminded that I think today about a third of the food production goes to waste. 
So it's not that mm. we do not. So the science will get us to grow more food, grow more nutritive food, and so forth. But it's not that we need more food grown, right? A lot of the challenges are around the waste, the, the production planning process, the risks, mm -hmm. contracts, incentives to get people to do the right thing, to coordinate supply chain and distribution. So a lot of what we would call the management sciences. So what do you think is the role of that scientific discovery in the management sciences, or is it really an application challenge, that there's a lot of knowledge that we already have that is not being applied in the food sector? Or is there a need, just as you talked about in this, your, your setting, is there a need for new discoveries that are needed to you know, apply all these ideas in the food sector? So great question, and, and the, my answer is, uh, is it's both. Um, so in one of, uh, one of the, the tenets of, of John Foley's work, the fellow I mentioned who, who published in Nature, you know, he's very adamant about saying exactly what you're saying. It's like, look, there's at least four different strategies that need to be pursued. Um, closing yield gaps in terms of what crops can do versus mm -hmm. where they're at is one of those strategies. But issues of infrastructure and dealing with food waste, et cetera, are another. And scientific discovery actually plays just as exciting and just as an important role there because when you talk about food waste, you are inevitably talking about um, food spoilage and food safety, and how do you, you know how do you actually transport stuff around? And so there's all kinds of issues in that area that are begging for you know this area of scientific discovery as well. But your management point, I could not agree with more. And you know, to be honest with you, here I sit in you know in your department, and and that was that was done with purpose because. Uh, because you know a personal a personal view would be that the science we do is you know something like this the science we do will you know it'll only be as good as the management that we apply you know with it and so we got to bring all this stuff together so all i can do is agree with with your comments charlie if you could wait for the mic please we're uh, recording so thank you uh, <clears throat> Harold, you mentioned um, that you're not using GMO technology in improvement of the cocoa. How do we overcome this blockage to innovation yeah. by unfavorable attitudes towards research and its progress through genetic manipulation, which have tremendous opportunities to address the problems of sustainability. Uh, you know, every question is going to be a great question, I can see, and that's another one. And um, you know, I wish I knew the answer, Charlie. I don't. You, you know, none of us do, apparently. <laughs> what I, um, I, you know, I have views which are that uh, it has something to do with the urgency of the catastrophe that is in front of us that will allow for that to happen. One recent example would be the citrus industry. And of course, on the East Coast and in Florida, there is a literally catastrophic situation facing the, the growers of citrus to the point where it's actually a rational discussion item that, you know what, you know, we, we may not be drinking as much orange juice in the future as, we act, you know, as, as we're used to. It'll, it'll be a tough to get 
hold of commodity, and that's due to a plant um, pathogen. And, um, and that group has readily adopted, with apparently very little fanfare, the concept of, of you know, genetic modification and helping to combat that. And so I don't know what the answer is, but I, I do think that it has something, you know, adoption of these things has a lot to do with just how big the burning, big and obvious the burning platform is. And that's a difficult strategy, though, to pursue because you can only bring so many burning platforms to the public before they get tired of it. But for whatever reason, it seems to have worked with the citrus group. But. Should we have one more question? Yes, please. Yeah, Harold, great talk. Um, how many Mars bars do I need to eat a day to improve my cognitive function? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to ask him as well. <laughs> so there's two answers to that. Num number, number one is... Uh, Number one is that for what you saw up here, which is the, uh, the cognitive function at, uh, enhancement that was apparently uh, provided by the cocoa flavanols, you, you can't eat it. You won't be able to get enough of, of that molecule no matter how many Mars bars you eat. So a big part of the scientific discovery with that, and I'm glad you asked the question because it allows me to clarify. I've spent the last 15 years telling media the message is not eat more chocolate in order to have this benefit. The message is, and actually I think each of you has it in your, your plastic uh, container of products there, is the answer is out of raw cocoa one can extract these molecules um, before the processing of cocoa does what it does and destroys the molecules. And there's actually a dietary supplement that can be made or, or other products that have nothing to do with chocolate. So first message, Richard, please don't, you know, take as the key message from this lecture to go eat as many Mars bars as you can to think, think better. Um, the second answer to the question is that uh, it turns out, as many of you know, the brain consumes an awful lot of, uh, of glucose and, and uh, you know, you can get a nice little cognitive, transitory cognitive boost by eating any product contain that, that provides a ready supply of glucose, um, so. <laughs> so on that note, on that uh, prescription, uh, um, uh, I've got a gift here for you in just a second, Harold, but shall chocolate? we? Is it chocolate? Steve? No, there's no, no chocolate in there. It's an umbrella and a blanket and all kinds of things you shouldn't eat in a coffee mug. But shall we thank uh, Harold for his uh, remarks? <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.